invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. It's good to see everyone out this morning, as usual, and especially on a beautiful sunny day. It's supposed to get pretty hot, though, but it still is a, a beautiful morning and a, another blessing that God has given us to worship Him, to be together, and to just be able to think a little bit more about Him and try to get closer with Him as we study His Word for just a few moments uh, more this morning. In 1 Kings chapter 18, I want to point your attention to two verses in, in particular. And that is because I think, it, for one thing, it's just kind of humorous as you look through this story of a well-known prophet named Elijah... And he is clearly doing the work of the Lord. He's doing the Lord's will. He's doing everything that is required of him by the Lord. And, and yet, he just doesn't seem to be getting the kind of recognition you'd expect from a prophet, from someone who's actually doing what God wants him to do. Um, in, in 1 Kings chapter 17, what we find is that a drought comes on the land of Israel and, and it, is, it is severe and it is something that had been prophesied. Elijah is the one that actually said this was going to happen and right after the fact he has to go into hiding. And, and Ahab, we find throughout the next chapter or so, has been diligent in trying to seek out Elijah and trying to find him out and, and he has made him priority number one in terms of enemies of Israel. And so when Elijah and Ahab meet again, in verse 17 of 1 Kings chapter 18, this is the first thing that Ahab says. Uh, when, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is this you, you troubler of Israel? Now, I just, I just think that's kind of funny because here is a man who has been doing everything that God has required of him, and yet he is the one that is called the troubler. And it makes me think, you know, generally when someone calls you a troublemaker, it's not something that we should relish. Uh, most of the time, it's, it's really, almost all the time, it's something that we need to make sure that we, we can't be guilty of. In fact, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 that we should be peacemakers. And, and, and so, we, even as you continue on in the New Testament, Paul would say at a later point that we need to be at peace with all men as far as we can. And, and so, all of that is true. But peace by the world's standards is not peace by God's standards, is it? In fact, you look at a passage that Jesus uh, is, is giving instruction to his disciples in Matthew chapter 10. And he says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And so it's just, it's very simply not the same standard that the world uses when we talk about peace, when we talk about being a, a troubler. And I really just want to, as we look at Elijah in this chapter, 1 Kings chapter 18, I want to look at what this means when Ahab is saying that, that he is the troubler of Israel. What is it that Elijah is being blamed for exactly? Well, you see this word that, that Ahab uses for Elijah, troubler. It's used throughout the Old Testament from time to time, particularly in 1 Chronicles chapter 2 and verse 7. You know who it's describing? Achan. The one who brought a curse upon Israel because he decided to take something that the Lord had devoted to destruction. And, and you even see that in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 18. In the instruction Joshua gives from the Lord, make sure you don't, you don't bring back anything from, from Jericho that is being destroyed. That you might not bring trouble on us. It's the same word. In the next chapter, in Joshua chapter 7 and verse 25, when he's found out, Joshua says, you are the one who has troubled us. Now, because you have troubled us and brought this curse upon us, the Lord is going to bring trouble on you. 
And so there's a lot behind this word. I mean, sometimes I, th I think we kind of lose the emphasis that is being made throughout the the, the whole Bible, really, when, when, when people are calling others names, this has a lot of, of context behind it. When Elijah is the one that's being called the troubler. What is he saying? You're just like Achan. You're the reason that all of this misfortune has been brought upon Israel. And so Ahab had blamed Elijah for everything that had gone wrong, particularly the drought. And, and this curse and this, this calamity that had come upon Israel. Why was Elijah a troubler? Is he really the one that brought this curse upon them? We all know that's not the case. Why is it that he is the one that's been, uh, that has had a target painted on him, particularly by Ahab? It's because he did not shirk away from his responsibility in preaching the will of God. In fact, look at all of, of who actually is involved in bringing this curse upon them. As you look back in 1 Kings chapter 16, looking specifically at Ahab. Ahab's reign is described in 1 Kings chapter 16, in, beginning in verse 29. It says, Now Ahab the son of Omri became king over Israel in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. It came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshipped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel, the Bethlehite, built Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates with the loss of his youngest son, Sagab, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. I do think that it's a very interesting connection to make, that here is the man who decided to rebuild the walls of Jericho, that God said, you better not, because there will be, he will pay with his son's lives, and that comes about exactly. I think it's interesting that, that in the very same story we were just mentioning is, is Ahab is using that same word for the person that is described as Achan, who has brought trouble upon them. And so once more, uh, I just think it's an interesting connection because here Ahab is doing the exact same thing that, that Achan did to the people of Israel. Now, with all of that being said, that, that is a good description of Ahab's reign as a whole. Because you keep going, there's, there's maybe a couple things that Ahab does that may seem like he's kind of going the opposite direction. He just keep, he ends up concluding his life in rebellion. And so he never really fully turns his, his life over to the Lord. And so it's because of Ahab's wicked reign that all of this had been brought upon Israel. And it's not just that, the, that Ahab is to blame. He is going to be held accountable by God because he is the leader. He is the king. But it's not just his fault. In fact, I'd say you go even further than that. It was all of Israel's fault. God had made so clear long ago that this is what would happen should they disobey him. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28 very quickly. Deuteronomy 28 in verse 15. After God has given all of these blessings that will come if they obey him, he then goes to the consequences that will come if they disobey him. And he says, it shall come about in verse 15, if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. This would be a good study to just look at all of them. But look in particular at verse 22. 
as he goes through all of these things that are going to come upon them of disobedience. Beginning in verse 21, he says, The Lord will make the pestilence cling to you until he has consumed you from the land where you are entering to possess it. The Lord will smite you with consumption and with fever and with inflammation and with fiery heat and with the sword and with blight and with mildew and they will pursue you until you perish. And you could keep going on, but let's just end in verse 45. So all these courses shall come on, uh, curses shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. He even says in verse 46, this will be a sign and a wonder on you and your descendants forever. So when you get to 1 Kings chapter 17 and the drought has come, exactly as God has said it in his will long ago, it should have been that the people of Israel said, hey, I recognize this. I know why this is happening, because we've strayed from God. None of them did, however, and so it just continues to get worse and worse and worse. Now, why do we go through all that? What am I learning from this? Well, there's just especially three applications that I want to make with this point. What was the cause of all the trouble? It wasn't Elijah's fault. It was the people's fault. And we become troublers today by straying further and further away from God. I'll go over to Proverbs very quickly in chapter 11. Proverbs chapter 11. And when I say that we become troublers, I mean just like the severity of Achan's sin. If he is a character we do not want to be like, we need to, take, we need to learn the lesson that we see even here in 1 Kings. But in Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 17, it's the very same word that's used when Elijah is being called a troubler. It says, the merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. It's the very same verse. In fact, you go down just a few verses in, the, in Proverbs chapter 11 again, but in verse 29, the New American Standard uses the word troubles. It says, He who troubles his own house will inherit wind, and the foolish will be servant to the wise-hearted. And so it's, it's, just, it's very clear that you bring this upon yourself, that you become just like Achan, you become just like Ahab, you are putting yourself in the same camp as those people. When we decide to stray further and further away from his will, particularly when it's so clear and right smack dab in front of our faces, just like it was for Israel. What are, what are we learning? We are just like those people that actually brought that curse upon their, their own people and themselves. Not only that, but I would just kind of in tandem with that. When we sin, we are inviting trouble, curse, calamity into our lives. Now, uh, again, in the same chapter, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 31, it says, If the righteous will be rewarded in the earth, how much more will the wicked and the sinner? Now, when the word reward is used, what it really is talking about is consequences. What consequence will people receive? Well, how, what consequence will the wicked and the sinner receive if we know the righteous will receive his reward? Now, I know that when we see verses like this, we tend to only think about the Objections. We tend to only think about the exceptions. Well, listen, here's what the Bible says, that the, the just, that the righteous will be rewarded. But I tell you, more than not, what I see in my life are the wicked being rewarded. A lot like Psalm 73, how that starts. I see that the evil ones, those that don't care about God, they're becoming fat and sleek. Well, I'm suffering. What's going on here? Now, I will just say, this, as, as we see in Proverbs chapter 11, this is the rule. This is not the exception. We will see the exception from time to time. But this is the rule. That when you decide to sin against God and you decide to take your own path, things will get worse. And, and I don't think you have to think very hard about, uh, uh, or very long rather, about 
examples in your own life where this exactly has happened. I can't tell you how many times people have just put God's wisdom to the side and decided that they were going to make their own decisions completely separate from God's wisdom and His counsel. And what happens is devastation on their house, on their families, on their own lives. Instead of hearing what God has to say about church discipline, people say, I think I know better. I'm just going to put that to the side because I care about this person too much. This person is family. And so I'm going to do it my own way. And what happens in the end? Well, ultimately, what most likely is going to happen is they're not going to see any problem with what they're doing because even the closest people to them, even the people that they would say are closest to God in their lives, well, they're not going to do anything about it. And so how this ends is you're essentially holding their hands to hell. That's, that's, that's kind of what's going on. You're inviting that calamity. You're inviting that consequence on yourself. And, and people, uh, Christians do this all the time. When we just hear what God's word has to say about here's the line that you are not to cross and we just get as close to it as possible. What are you doing? You are just beckoning out that you do not care about God's standard, that you are willing to bring this kind of uh, consequence upon yourself. And so we need to be so careful that, that we do listen to his warnings. No matter how long ago it was given, we need to make sure that we are obeying his instructions so that way we do not bring these kinds of consequences into our life. But finally, and this is one of the main points I want to make from this, trouble will arise when we expose the deeds of darkness. As, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5, and verses 11 through 12, he says, don't participate in the deeds of darkness. In fact, you need to rather expose them. And so don't think that this is just something for a prophet. This is just something for Elijah. This is something for God's people today that you are required to not only not participate in sin, but you need to be able to talk about it to people and, and cite why this is wickedness. This is sinning against God. This is breaking His holy commandment, His holy covenant. And, and, and frankly, I think a lot of times people, when, when, when they see, you know, well, someone cited a Bible verse, and now all this strife has come up, all this trouble has come up, so it's their fault. Whose fault is it really? Is it really the person who has brought up just a verse from the Scriptures? Is it really the person that has said, you know what God has said about this? That it is sin. About this lifestyle, whether it be homosexuality, or it be something that maybe we just see as, as smaller in our own standards, regardless of what it is. What almost always happens is what happens to Elijah. Oh, you're the one that's troubled Israel. But you even go back to 1 Kings. How does, how does Elijah respond in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 18? I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. And so whose fault is it? It's not the person that actually cares about doing what God said. It's not the person that actually cares about his will and speaking it boldly. It's the person that has gone so far that they just don't care about what it says anymore. Now, I know that people would object and say, but, but, but there would be no strife at all if you had just been silent. You know, this is funny. Uh, this has actually happened to me, when it, especially when it comes to church discipline. Someone, has, uh, uh, someone that I was really close to came to me and they said, it, what was normal for us has been broken and it's because of what you have done. It's because of the decision you have made. And I was like, please elaborate. Because this was someone who had completely abandoned their responsibility to God, had, not been, uh, had been neglecting the, serve, uh, the assembling of the saints for some time now. And, and now there's a rift in between our relationship and they're saying, you're the reason that we can't be normal anymore. 
And, and it, it just it blew me away because here I am thinking, what I have done is cite scripture, what you used to advocate as well. So if there's a rift, who's the one that caused it? Is it the one that just acknowledged there's a difference in our living now? Or is it the one that decided that they're going to change the way they live, that they're going to change the, the path that they were on? I'll tell you, it wasn't my fault. Now, that's not to say that I don't need to be um, maybe careful about how I approach people in those kinds of situations, but it's not my fault that the strife is there, that the contention is there. I'll tell you what, the, 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 it specifically happened with my own family. When my siblings decided that they were not going to, to uh, continue to be faithful to the Lord, and I studied out what the scriptures teach about how you need to treat those kinds of relationships, even though it may be close blood relatives, that's the excuse they get. You're the reason it's no longer normal. No, no, that's not fair. You don't get to say that because you were also washed in the blood of Christ just like I was. So what was normal has been changed forever, not because of me, but because of your decision. And I'll tell you what, we need to get to the point where we can, where we can, where we can look at that kind of situation, where we can hear someone say that, even if they are close to us, and come to the conclusion that this is not on me. I'm only preaching what God has said. I'm only speaking what God has said. And in fact, when you think about Israel or Ahab trying to say this to Elijah, when, when he says, this is all your fault, understand they had already suffered through the drought for two to three years at this point. And so, so you know, he tries to say, Elijah, this is all you're doing. No, it's not. Even, even though Elijah was gone from the picture and in hiding, all this time, Ahab had been saying, you are enemy number one. This is the man who's to blame. This is the man who's responsible for all the mistakes. <laughs> and here they had been suffering for three years with this drought. And so there was already strife there. And, and I would just add to that, if this is the case, if the strife only comes because someone has, has brought it up, and it's not, that, it's not the sinner's fault, does that mean that Jesus is guilty? Does that mean that Jesus is at fault for the whole world standing in judgment against God? Go over to John chapter 3 very quickly. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We all know verse 16 very well. But the verse after, in John chapter 3, in verse 17, after Jesus has said that the Father has sent the Son, in verse 17 it says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then he goes on to talk about how uh, essentially those that are living in the dark want to stay there and they hate the light. Because the light exposes their deeds. Because the light exposes what they are. And so, but, but what do you see in verses 17 through 18? It is not that the world stands in judgment. Just because Jesus had to speak up all of a sudden, they already were condemned in the sight of God. What Jesus has come for is to reveal that and to reveal that he is the way to salvation. And so, no, it's not Jesus' fault in the same way it's not Elijah's fault. And it's not our fault when trouble arises or strife arises simply because we are just repeating the words of the Lord. And I, I would even add on to that. Did Elijah have a right even to decline his duty before God and prophesy that this drought would come? Did he have a right to decline God's command to go to Ahab and not do what we see in 1 Kings chapter 18. Well, if Elijah had no right to decline that responsibility, do we? When Paul says in Ephesians 5, you need to not participate and you need to, in fact, expose the deeds of darkness. 
So I think that that's, I think that's certainly a point that is applicable for us today. But not only that, I want to look at the challenge that, that he gives, that Elijah gives to the Baal worshipers, to the Baal, prophets of Baal, and to Ahab himself back in 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. Or we'll go ahead and pick up in verse 19 where we left off. It says, Now send and gather to me all Israel at Mount Carmel, together with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, let them give us two oxen, and let them choose one ox for themselves, and cut it up, and place it on the wood. But put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other ox, and lay it on the wood, and I will not put a fire under it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, hey, that's a good idea. Now, here is the challenge that, that Elijah gives to the people, the Baal worshippers, and really what is representative of much of Israel at this day and age. Do you notice what is immediately condemned in verse 21? In verse 21 again, he says, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? And then what? If the Lord answers, if, God, if Jehovah God is the one that answers, follow him and leave Baal behind completely. Stop acting like you can serve God and mammon. Stop acting like you can serve God and Baal at the same time because that just does not work. The, the New English translation uh, translates it this way. How long are you going to be paralyzed by indecision? I think that that is a great temptation for people today, at least in our culture, is indecision. It, we, we, it's, not, it, it's not as maybe outright, it's not maybe as direct as, as just, just utter rejection of God and I think that's why it's so, so tempting, because it's so subtle. But here these people were. They were paralyzed by indecision. I think many people today are paralyzed by indecision. Now, these people could say, but we still offer sacrifices to God. Hey, we still pray to Jehovah. We still are praying, and we are still giving tithes to the Levitical priests, maybe even. Maybe not as much as they should. But maybe they could say, at least we're still offering some of these sacrifices to the Lord. Guess what? It doesn't matter. You can't pay God to not, you know, count that against your, <laughs> count that against your judgment, against your uh, relationship with him. You can't expect to obligate him by bribing him with a sacrifice when you spend your entire week living the way Baal would have you to live, a false God. But, but, but we're still giving sacrifices. That doesn't mean you've chosen him. So, so what does idolatry look like? It does not have to be just outright rejection. It can simply be not deciding to serve him only. It can simply be not deciding completely to take everything else out and only look at what God has to say. Over in Matthew chapter 6, I alluded to this just a minute ago, but Matthew chapter 6 in verse 24, Jesus makes this point Exactly. As he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Your translation may say mammon. But here's the point. You cannot think that God is going to accept partial devotion or partial obedience. It is either you completely give yourself to him, or you are completely rejected by him. Those are, those are the only options. 
And we don't get to come in and say, but I want this along with something else. And people do this all the time today. And maybe they're sincere when they say, I want to make God happy. But I also don't want to let my coaches down on the Wednesday night game. I hear a lot of kids say that. Young people say that. And from young people to older people, I think this is one that you see uh, maybe even more. People say, I want to serve God, but I also really don't want to lose my girlfriend or my boyfriend or my spouse who is simply just pulling me away from him or further from him. I want to make God happy, but I also want to make this person happy. Guess what? What most of the time happens is neither person are happy because they can tell that they don't have your full devotion. They don't have your full attention. And I've used an example like this before, but I mean, there, there has been times where Paige has asked me to be with her and I will be with her, but I'm still on my phone, whether it's playing chess online or, or, or just watching a video or listening to a study. I'm, I'm sitting right next to her, but she asked me a question. And I'm just like, oh, okay. <laughs> what, do you know what I even asked? You repeat yourself one more time. <laughs> that, am I really focused on her? Have I given her my full attention? No, and she can tell. And, and so it's some, most, most of the time justified when that anger comes after that. It's justified, and it's more justified with God. God will not accept partial devotion. Anything less than full dedication to Him is idolatry, pure and simple. And we need to understand that just like the people of Israel needed to understand that uh, even today. Now, continuing on in 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 25, that's where we left off. It says, after giving that initial challenge, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of, the, of, of your God, but put no fire under it. Then they took the ox which was given them, and they prepared it and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they leaped about the altar which they made. It came about at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Call out with a loud voice, for he is a God. Either he is occupied or gone aside or is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and needs to be awakened. So they cried with a loud voice and cut themselves according to their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. When midday was past, they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. I gotta say, I love the emphasis of verse, 20, verse 29. It is so clear. There was no answer. They cried out for hours and they made themselves bleed out for hours and they just kept on going. I mean, you'd think at some point they would lose the, the energy. You'd think at some point that it would just lose their own attention. But they just keep on going. Now, I, I want to point out specifically in this, in this part of the passage, when you look at how foolish they are acting, Elijah, in verse 27, it says it, it, that Elijah mocked them. When you see that, that he mocked them, what do you think? Do you immediately think, how disrespectful, how rude? He's trying to reach these people. Or do you think that maybe there's a little bit more to this that we can learn? And, and let me just say, I think we also need to learn, just like from Elijah's example, that it is appropriate and oftentimes very necessary to highlight senseless or foolish ideologies or behaviors for that matter. We need to be just as clear as Elijah. We need to be just as bold and confident as Elijah when we see, just frankly, absurd behaviors. And, and, and this happens time and time again. But what, unfortunately, I think 
many Christians look at or, or think when they see that Elijah mocks them, some people today would think Elijah was being arrogant or rude, and you couldn't be further away from the truth. Again, I'm not saying that our goal is to try and be hurtful or disrespectful to people, but there's a time for direct confrontation. There is a time when we have to be willing to highlight the foolish and senseless ideas of the day. So someone comes up and, and they talk about the, the, the start of our universe. And what, what does the skeptic usually say? Something came from nothing. I, I mean, clearly, there's a logical disconnect here. No one actually believes that, that something came from nothing? And it doesn't take long. You don't even have to have a very high degree. You don't really even have to have a degree. You just go through primary school and you find out that is, makes no sense. It's a logical fallacy. It, it's stupid. And in fact, I can't remember who the writer was, but there was an article uh, that was talking about this idea of evolution and these things. And essentially what he said was, this is the dumbest idea that smart people have ever come up with before in the history of man. And, and, and sometimes we need to be able to speak like that about something so absurd. Here's another one. Men can be women. And you have people, elected officials, that won't even try to explain what a woman is and what a man is. That's absurd. Some people would say Jesus never existed. We have ample evidence to prove that he was from Nazareth, that he was someone who accrued a mass following, that he was crucified, and, 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 and even that there was an empty tomb there no one could find his body. But there were some eyewitnesses that witnessed him ascending to heaven. And so, so all kinds of stupid things that people can say, we need to be able to come with the same force as Elijah. And, and again, not trying to be disrespectful, but we need to be able to point these things out and call it out the way it is. This is absurd, and, and I'm not going to back away from that. We need to be just like Elijah and, and be bold and confrontational at times when the, when the uh, occasion calls for it. But you continue on in verse 30. And what does it say in verse 30? Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, Israel shall be your name. So with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed. Then he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he did it, and, and, and they did. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. The water flowed around the altar and he also filled the trench with water. What was Elijah doing? <laughs> he was being very bold. He had made a challenge. And what he was starting to do from an earthly standpoint is he put himself at a great disadvantage. He was giving himself impossible odds to a degree. That's what he wanted everyone else to see. I, I tell you, I think we need to be just as bold as Elijah when we challenge sin and rebellion today. There's something to learn from this. Elijah, even after filling this trench three times with four pitchers of water till it was filled to the brim, there's no way that a fire is going to be started. He was bold. He was unfazed. In fact, he was quite confident. Why is it? Because he understood that what is impossible for people and false gods, gods of wood and stone, what is impossible for them is not impossible for God, for Jehovah. And he was confident in that. And so even though he did give himself impossible odds, guess who can do the impossible? God. Because nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is too difficult for him. 
Now, I just, I just ask, are, do we see this kind of faith today? Do we see this kind of boldness just in ourselves today? Why aren't more people challenging false doctrine boldly? Why is it that when people start, when people start questioning others about false doctrine, when people start questioning others about skepticism, why is it that we don't have the same kind of confidence Elijah had, that we can say, hey, you know what? Why don't you make it harder on me? You, you go ahead and fill a trench up with water. And in fact, I, I like how he kind of starts this challenge. You bring 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. I'm the only one left of the Lord. Not even that's going to phase Elijah. And why? Because he knows in whom he has believed. Because he knows Jehovah. He knows the stories of his victories. And he knows the kind of victory that only God can bring. But I tell you, it's a serious problem when, when we today who have the full revelation Christ, we do not have this same confidence. Am I willing to be this faithful and this confident in the work of the Lord, or am I one of those people that will shirk away, that will compromise, much like Ahab, and just allow idolatry in, allow people to continue living in that way without any pushback whatsoever? We need more Elijahs today. Because I'll tell you, I think the reason that it got to this point in Israel is because there weren't enough of him. There weren't enough people saying, you're going too far. There weren't enough people just as bold saying, you can make it even more challenging for me. God's still going to have the victory. That's how it gets to that point. But with all that being said, I do want to just end with the victory very quickly. In verse 36 of chapter 18, after it says in verse 29 that there was no answer from any of the false gods. It says in verse 36, At the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their heart back again. That's all that's said. Very quickly, 30 seconds, he's done. Compare that to the prophets, the false prophets. But continuing on, Right after that 30-second prayer in verse 38, fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. Now, when you think about victory... <laughs> A lot of times when it's just our victories that we try to attain, it's, it's very limited. And a lot of times it's not, as, it's not as, you know, just the blowout that we wanted. But I'll tell you what, when God is the one that gets the victory, the, the opponent doesn't even score. <laughs> the opponent has no chance. And just as emphatic as God's victory is, it is just as emphatic the idolater's defeat. I think that's what we're supposed to see here. There was not even a whisper when the prophets of Baal and Asherah cut themselves, put themselves open before everyone made a fool of themselves for hours. But as soon as Elijah prayed, what happens? Not just the offering, but everything surrounding it. Even the water was completely eaten up by that scale of fire. Fire of the Lord. You want to see what victory in God looks like? It's undeniable. In fact, you look at verse 39... The people are shouting, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. How much more emphatic can it get? And God doesn't stop there. In verses 41 through 46, what he does is end the drought to make sure that nobody misunderstands what's happened here. 
that he is the one that has brought this curse upon the land because of their rebellion, and he is the one that is taking it away. And if they just continue down this path of the Lord, he is God, it can, they can be blessed again. Now, what do we take from all this? Ultimately, this is what victory in God looks like. This is the kind of victory that only God can bring. But on the other hand, don't think that this victory means that Elijah didn't have to keep working anymore. Elijah was going to have to keep on going and, and prophesying for the people. He was going to have to keep on dealing with Ahab and Jezebel. In fact, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 19, immediately following such a beautiful victory, what happens? Does Elijah go into happily ever after? No, he has to go right back into hiding. Because uh, Jezebel didn't like what she heard. And so he goes, and in fact, this kind of depresses him for a time. Not, not forever, but for a time. And so don't think just because there is victory, and maybe even victory on this earth in, in a very uh, tangible way, don't think that that means that there's no more work to be done. Don't, be, don't become discouraged when we realize that we still have to go to work tomorrow, and we're going to have to deal with the same difficult people every single day. When, unfortunately... This is just the reality of life on earth. And so what do we learn from this? When we are baptized and our sins are washed away, that is a beautiful victory and we can sleep the best sleep we've ever had that very night. But just like Paul, we have to understand we have the victory in God, but, but we're not there yet in eternity. And so we have to keep working. That's why I have 2 Timothy chapter 4 there. Because even though Paul was certain and confident that he had that victory from God, that Jesus was going to bring him into eternity, into his loving arms, he knew that there was still the good fight that needed to be fought. And so I, I, just, I just ask, when there are setbacks in life, and when there are discouragements, are we just going to, to sit down and quit and say, no more? Or are we going to remember the victory that is sure in God? Just like Elijah had to do. Don't think that just because we have had a great victory on one day, don't think that the devil won't come back and try to hit you two times as hard the next. Because he will. In fact, that's one thing that we learn from the temptations of Jesus as he was in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. The devil came back at an opportune time. We're going to have to deal with setbacks of this life. But remember, think about that overwhelming victory that God can bring, that only he can bring. Now, you can be a part of that. You can taste what he, the, the blessings that he gives to those who are obedient to him. Or you can be a part of the overwhelming defeat of those who reject him and rebel against him. It's, it's your choice. But you don't get to pick a third option. It is either you obey him and you be a part of that victory or you disobey him and he will reject you in the end. And so it's one or the other. Don't think that indecision will save you, just like the people of Israel were trying to do. Don't think that you can serve God and mammon, God and wealth, God and family. It is him and nothing else. Are you willing to have that kind of faith? If you're a Christian, maybe you've strayed, you need to make your life right with God this morning, you can make that happen. You have an advocate in heaven. If you have not been washed of your sins, guess what camp you fall in? the ones that will see, receive the overwhelming defeat. But you can have victory in Jesus if you decide to obey him, if you have faith in what he says, make a confession based on that belief, repent of your sins, and be baptized into, into newness of his life. You can have salvation this very morning. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.